BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I had the pleasure of chatting with Nadja Bilbasi Charters. Nadja is the Bureau Chief of Al Arabiya in Washington, D.C. She's a well-known reporter in the Arab world. She's been working as a foreign correspondent for over 20 years. I think she might have been one of the first TV interviews that I did when I was working at the White House. We discussed so many topics, including Gaza, Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia and its transformation, Yemen on Lebanon, and other topics as well. I hope you enjoy this interview. I thought it was really interesting. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. So today I have a really interesting experience. This is the first time that I get to interview somebody who's interviewed me. Um, Nadja, I'm so pleased to have you as a guest. And I, and I want to say for my audience that my first interaction with you, and I was fortunate to get interviewed by you, by you a few times, was so incredibly positive. You're the bureau chief for al and I have to admit, I was a little nervous going into your studio because I wasn't sure what kind of treatment you would give me. And more importantly, whether you would both be fair in your questions and actually air all my answers. You know, you and I come from very, very different backgrounds. You were born in Gaza. You've had quite an incredible life, and I, and I want to get into that during the course of this interview. Uh, my policies, the policies of the Trump administration, who I worked with, were very different than you were accustomed to. I'm sure you had many disagreements with our policies, but you were not only incredibly respectful. If I recall, you aired everything that I said uh, I think there were like three words that got cut, but I won't, I won't talk about those, but um, I, you, it really, it was such a pleasure dealing with you. So thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Um, it's actually a great opportunity uh, to chat uh, formally or informally the way you want it. But I think I hope that the audience uh, will leave this conversation with uh, some insightful uh, maybe ideas about how we can go forward to end this uh, conflict in the Middle East has been costing so much lives and suffering on both sides. Totally agreed. And since we mentioned, or I mentioned that you were born in Gaza, I, I want to start with Gaza. There was a piece in the New York Times this week about um, young men who are getting married in Gaza who are now going into jail because they can't afford their weddings. So, and of course, they want to get married. I guess they borrow money to have their weddings and then... Very tragically, if they can't pay back the loans to get married, they get thrown into jail. I spent three years working on this thing, and there's no, there seems to be no solution to Gaza. I know people like to blame Israel for the blockade. I obviously very much disagree with that. I think the fault lies with Hamas, with Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But I think what you and I could both agree upon is the people of Gaza, the Palestinians who live in Gaza, deserve better lives. And I have three kids getting married this year. I can't even imagine them, you know, having to borrow money to get get you know to get married, let alone being thrown into jail for getting married. Give me a little bit about your background and your view on uh, on that story if you've read it. 
Well, congratulations, first of all, uh, for your children getting married. And I, I can ident identify with that because it's such a hardship for Palestinians in general, but in particular in Gaza, just to make ends meet. You know, it's the situation has been extremely hard over the last, uh, well, you can go back to almost 50, 60 years, but in particular since Hamas took over uh, Gaza in 2007. Um, so the people of Gaza, really the victim of both um, Israeli aggression and Hamas policies, and they're trapped. So there's no future whatsoever for the young people. And you can see the desperation, the lack of hope, the lack of opportunity. Gaza in particular is not rich with anything. It's wedged between the Mediterranean and the rest of the West Bank with a narrow corridor to, to the West Bank and Israel and one checkpoint to enter and to exit. So you really cannot go anywhere. And life is very, very hard for young people. And you can imagine when we talk about two million people living in a big jail, that's the life of daily Gazans. So if you're a young man and you want to get married and you don't have money, um, and then you have to go to jail because you cannot pay for this, it just by itself manifests what is it like to be a Palestinian in Gaza. And the worst part of it is, as you said, despite all the good intention on so many people, there's no solution. And when you're trapped with no solution and there is no hope, then you give up on life. And that's the saddest thing that we can talk about today is when we create an opportunities for young people, we want to move forward. We're talking about technology. We're talking about connecting people together. And yet there is some people, or most of the people actually in Gaza, cannot even travel to Jerusalem. They cannot travel to the West Bank. They cannot travel anywhere. So not just because of COVID, but because of the reality on the ground that they have to get permit everywhere they go. And that's really, really sad. So I'm going to come up with an out-of-the-box idea. You know, the Trump administration, we like coming up with out-of-the-box ideas. <laughs> sure. I, I was trained by, by President Trump. If, in Judaism, there are a lot of different charities. I know that's true of the Muslim world, the Christian world, but one mm -hmm. of the charities that I really love is when people want to get married and they can't afford it, there are organizations that try to help pay for the wedding costs. If we were to be able to get together with a bunch of people, journalists, non-journalists, people who want to support peace and better lives, and come up with a small fund and slowly start um, helping some of these uh, couples, bridegrooms, I guess, are the ones who seem to be paying for it, uh, with their bills. Is there a way to actually get the money to them and in a way that it doesn't end up in Hamas's hands, that every cent of it goes to actually pay for the wedding so that we don't have to worry that Hamas both steals it from the young couple and worse, uses it in ways to attack Israel? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure um, there is many ways to help people and to make sure that the funds go directly to the people that they need it. There are many NGOs who works in, in Gaza or the West Bank or even in Jerusalem uh, that can help these people. Um, but this is, I mean, this is very charitable. This is a, a big kind heart to help people just to, uh, to, to realize their aim, whether they want to get married or they want to go to school or they want to, to build their house. But I think on, in the bigger issue, Jason, we have to help lifting people out of poverty, which is giving them a chance. And giving them a chance is making sure that they depend on themselves and people are willing, they're just waiting for a chance to happen. And also talking about money going to Hamas, let's not forget 
there is a bigger game played in the Middle East and that particular part of the world. Don't forget that Qatar arranged with Israel to send money to Hamas. There is money that goes through Hamas hands in suitcases and in cash. So it's not like, you know, uh, we, we, we don't want a terrorist organization to get hold of the money because it goes to, wrong, to the wrong people. There is a sustainable system that allows Hamas to exist. And partly with the help of Israel, they know about this money, they cooperate with, with the Qataris and they get the money through a, a, a legal checkpoint where the ambassador himself go through there and give them the money. Now, of course, this money pays for the civil employees and to uh, avoid going into total collapse in Gaza, it's understandable, but that by itself helped to sustain the status quo. I think that's true. I think Qatar has been very generous. They have been working with Israel directly on this, bringing the money in, and it's a very complicated situation because mm-hmm. on the one hand, the people do need the money to survive. On the other hand, some of that money does get used for nefarious purposes. And, you know, again, it's just so difficult to untangle this mess. But I hope that over time, people like you and I and others could try to uh, work with governments, work with others of goodwill, and and see how we could help Gaza um, not just survive, because they really are barely surviving, but really eventually thrive. And um, and maybe, maybe, maybe Hamas will move in a different direction and become part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Absolutely. And if, if, if you allow me as well, as you said, me and you come from a very different background. But you know what connects us is a sincere desire to do something and to make a difference in people's lives. And this is very important. I might be criticized and you might be criticized, but the bottom line is how can we work together to find a common ground to make sure that we at least make a small dent in this horrible situation that will change for the better? And whether we work on an individual base, whether we work with government, whether we work with NGOs, whether we work with the international organizations, whatever is the means, but at least we make a difference. And this is very important. And I think that, I think if we work with the people directly, uh, we bypass the, the governments and the bureaucracy and the, the sanctions and the blockade and all of these kind of things, and tell people that we want to do something for them and to make them believe in the end that there is no other solution except for the Israelis and Palestinians to live together in peace. And that's the bottom line, is we have to stop the rockets that go into uh, Israeli cities and threatening people like my grandmother or like a, a grandchild, and vice versa, that Israel used incredible force to bombard a whole city that the most densely populated with no regret, uh, no uh, consideration or respect for human life. And it's called collateral damage. So if we're trying to do within this framework to do something meaningful, I think uh, we are on the right way, on the right path. I agree. You know, one of my, I have a lot of memorable stories from my time at the White House, but one of my most memorable was um, when I first met a group of Palestinians from Gaza, one of the women there had cancer. And she was waiting for a permit from Israel in order to be able to go into Israel to get cancer treatment. And the permit was, I don't know, it wasn't forthcoming. I'm not sure exactly why. It happened to be on that day I was commemorating my mother's yortzet. The yortzet is the anniversary of her death. She's, she passed mm-hmm. away now almost uh, 18 and a half years ago. At the time, it was probably 14 years from then. And I called the Israeli government, and, and they issued the permit on the spot. But 
you know, I was lucky, right? I was able to yeah. get a direct line to the prime minister's office, but there were so many people who are suffering. So I'll renew the invitation I, I gave you. I don't know when and if we'll ever be able to pull this off, but one day you and I should do two things. One, go to the border between Gaza and Israel so we could get a tour of the terror tunnels, but also go into Gaza and meet some of the extraordinary people who live there, who suffer there, and, and try to make a dent in their lives, as you say, and make make yeah. their lives better. So um, I'll figure out if that's possible. I don't know that I could get into Gaza safely. I'm not sure if you can, but uh, we have to we have to work hard to try to make a dent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have to guarantee you your safety, obviously. Um, you know, the situation now, I left Gaza almost 40 years ago. Um, and at my time, as a child who was born in the 60s, I witnessed a uh, few wars, the 67, the 73. I lived all my life under Israeli military occupation, which means that when you are 16-year-old, you can le- never leave your house without carrying your ID, identity card. And I shared these stories with you, I think, on our first meeting. Um, and life was very hard because you cannot leave without getting a permit from the military to go, if I want to go to Egypt, if I want to go to Europe, uh, to study or even get a medical uh, treatment. It has to be approved by the military. So the military controlled your life and you are not free at all. I mean, the most important thing is freedom. So now people in Gaza losing everything. It's not just their freedom, but the infrastructure, the dignity of living um, like other human beings, that they're entitled to live like this. So Poverty with, with lack of, of taking away your freedom, you can imagine what life is like now. I was lucky one, I was one of the lucky ones to leave Gaza that, at that time and go and study in England, persuade my degree and my family were supporting. Now the situation is so miserable. Even people who get scholarship, I know many organizations are trying to give Gazans a scholarship. I was in Dublin recently, actually, my daughter just started her master's degree at Trinity. And I met some Palestinian, uh, uh, you know, uh, organizations, and and they're saying that they're trying to get people out of Gaza, and they couldn't. They couldn't even give them, and they have a scholarship. They couldn't leave Gaza. So it's so heartbreaking to see that these people, and we need people who are educated because when you're educated, you see the world differently. When you are trapped in one place, you can only carry uh, the resentment the hate for the other, because you blame the other for everything that's happened to you. And the other, of course, is Israel in the case of Palestinians in Gaza. But when you leave and you look at different life, you believe that how can we build a, f- a better future for all of us? Because we can. The bottom line is we really can. So that's that's the tragedy. I think the tragedy that everybody tried for over so many years and everything came to a total failure. And yes, we need to help people. And I remember actually, and I argue against some who said that the Jared Kushner plan of injecting billions of dollars into Gaza and the Sinai and part of other neighboring countries, whether it's Palestinians in Jordan or in Lebanon or in Syria, it is um, an alternative to uh, liquidating the Palestinian cause because this is an economic plan. And I argue against that. And I say no, because people can still fight for their rights because it is a legitimate cause to fight for, absolutely. But also they can take the help from the outside because every day passes without having somebody who's willing to help you 
is everyday lost. And it's actually just not on individual level, but we're talking about generations. I hear you. Um, and and you, and my, you and I may disagree on this, but I think for me, the key is figuring out how to help or stop Hamas from subjugating the Palestinians there, stopping to attack Israel, and then hopefully Israel will feel comfortable and allow Gaza uh, the room to breathe. Right now they're, in, they're both in such a terrible situation. Israel's getting attacked, so they have to defend and, and close things, and Gaza's are suffering. But I think the, the real key here is figuring out how to get Hamas uh, closer to being um, able to understand that there is no future like this. And, and I agree also with a very important point you said. Our goal, um, Jared's goal in creating that economic plan for the Palestinians had nothing to do with liquidating the Palestinian cause, but it yeah. was an essential component to one day what might ever, if it ever comes to pass, a true, warm, effective peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Absolutely. And look, part of it, again, we can agree and disagree on uh, many issues, but um, Hamas in particular, if there is election, and we all know that, if there is a true election in Gaza tomorrow, Hamas will be voted out. So we don't have election, and it's not going to happen anytime soon because they are happy with the status quo. So the issue, it is, again, the people are victim of who they represent them. And Hamas shouldn't be the way they are now because every day, again, goes by, they have more power and it becomes so hard. And for people, it's just a source of living and getting some money when they join the police force for in Gaza, for example, or even when they join uh, the, the militias. Uh, so in a way, the international community is enabling them. And Israel some have some deals with them when it suits him. And sometimes people believe that um, it is Israel can deal with Hamas as a law and order issue. Oh, of course, many will disagree with that. But the bottom line is how we can get a unified Palestinian leadership that can negotiate a deal for both sides, for the Israelis, for the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And that's the question. So you've uh, you've been reporting from troubled spots all over the world. You've been to South Sudan, Rwanda, mm-hmm. Somalia, Congo, Eritrea, a whole bunch of places. I think at one point you were embedded with the 101st Marine Division. But yeah. and I didn't know you back then, but I did know you through my time in Washington and there were two times that I was very concerned about your safety and neither time I ever would have imagined what happened in this country, the United States of America. The summer mm-hmm. of 2020 and then January 6th, I saw video footage from your Twitter feed, and truly, I was scared for you, and I reached out to you. Having been in America for the time you've been here already, but also have seen all those trouble spots, would you ever have imagined the United States of America under those conditions? No. Um, actually, um, as you mentioned, I spent 20 years of my life as a field reporter and as a war reporter, war correspondent covering um, everywhere, really, in Africa. Um, and also broke my heart now to see another po- possible war between Ethiopia and uh, internally and also could be with Eritrea. I covered these wars. I've seen young people led to their death. Um, and it, 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 it keeps a scar, a psychological scar in your heart that's really hard to heal. So one of the reasons I left Africa is because to me, I was playing a Russian roulette. I had two small children. 
I lost my husband in a hijacked uh, plane crash. And I thought, no matter how much I like this job, which is a noble one to tell people stories and uh, to let the whole world know what's happening to them in remote areas, like as you said, in Southern Sudan or Ethiopia or uh, Eritrea or Tanzania or Nigeria, whatever it was I was covering. Um, so I decided in the end that as a mother, my duty for my children is more important than anything else. So I decided to move to, to take the job and come to Washington. Um, and I think for me, what made my mind was covering the war in Iraq because it was so hard. It was so hard. And this is always the dilemma for working, working and career uh, journalists and also uh, happen to be mothers and they have children and they have responsibility. Um, so I promised my kids that that's it. I'm not going to go to a war zone again. I'm going to move them to safety. Uh, I have one of my children was born in Sri Lanka. I was covering the war there. The other one was born in Senegal. We moved and we lived in different parts of Africa. The last post was in Nairobi, Kenya. I moved to Washington and I thought, that's it. It's like I have to deal just to navigate the politics and the disagreements between Republicans and Democrats until that summer. Um, there was time, I have to say, I was scared too because we were tear gassed, uh, there was stampede. You, it was, the situation was so volatile uh, during the riots in the, in the summer. Um, and it was so hard. It brought bad memories, actually, of me covering war zones. Um, and there was a, a night that I thought I'm going to quit. I thought, that's it. I'm done with covering wars and conflict. But again, it's a journalist in you. So you wake up in the morning and said, like, where is the story? Like, I'm going to go back in the streets. Um, on the 6th of January, um, it was hard, too, because... Um, not just that we didn't expect the violence and how it turned out to be, but it was like a cold January morning. Um, I was wearing my mask and we were abused, me and my cameraman, verbally by the crowd who were uh, calling us all kinds of names. You know, you work for the Chinese Communist Party, you're this, you're, uh, I mean, words that I really don't want to mention now. <laughs> they were not uh, nice to mention. But, you know, this comes with the job. It's understandable. I mean, uh, this is what we do, and we have thick skin, and we carry on doing the job. But then when the things turn really violent and ugly and we start hearing uh, shots and crowd and tear gas, uh, we realize that um, it, we are in, into trouble. And uh, it was just running, and you don't know which direction you're going to run, but it depends on your luck. At that time i think uh relying on my experience as a war correspondent and navigating the danger but you can you can feel it there was a feeling of danger uh around the capital uh, but you know i mean luckily we survived it it was so bad we, we lost few people i think four people died um and uh and it scarred the nation till now and it was really hard for me to explain it to an arab audience or to international audience that this is happening in the United States of America, because people thought this is um, there is a civil disagreement, and there is uh, counter narratives, but it never resort to violence. And to see these uh, these images was shocking. Indeed, and I'm glad you're safe. And please tell your kids that they have a brave mom who's doing important work. Thank you. Let, let's head back to the Middle East for a bit. So you recently mm -hmm. moderated a panel for the Atlantic Council about whether building a sustainable regional security order for
or the GCC as possible. What are some of the takeaways from that panel? Look, uh, we live in a, um, a changing world. There is shifting alliances, there is common enemies, um, and there is change in people's perception of, of really everything on every level. Let's not forget that almost 60% of the entire population of the Middle East is under the age of 30. We have a young population. You see the word differently. And some of them, I won't say they don't care about these conflicts, but they want to move on with their lives. Unfortunately, I mean, that means leaving the Palestinians behind. Uh, And that's a different political discussion. But I think for the Gulf states and the Abraham Accords, I, I believe that it did bring people together. There is a huge cooperation that can happen on vital issues like climate change. I mean, we're talking about terrorism, we talk about um, sovereignty and people's rights um, within a state, but also we're talking about our rights to live on the planet. And if we don't have a planet, nobody has rights. So fighting climate change is very, very important. Talking about energy, talking about uh, agriculture, talking about, uh, so many issues that could be technology, of course, uh, that it could be a common ground between the five Arab countries who normalize relations with Israel uh, and Israel. So yesterday, I think, I believe, or the day before, was the first commercial flight between the Emiratis and, and Israel that landed in, in Tel Aviv. Um, so on that level, um, we can move forward, but also we, we cannot ignore the Israeli-Palestinian question. Look, I agree the circumstances is not right. The Biden administration is not interested in doing anything now on a massive scale, i.e. reignite the peace process. Um, the Palestinians are divided. Um, I wish we have better representation in both Gaza and the West Bank, but this is what you have. And it's really up to the people to choose their representation. Uh, There is a chance in Israel, but I don't even know how big is that chance now because the government is not stable, changes every two years, etc. But also we have Iran on the other side. Iran has posed a threat to all its neighbors. Uh, And now we will see where we're going to go. Yesterday, just before I ended this panel that you talked about, uh, we didn't know actually that Iran announced it's coming back to the seventh round of negotiation on November 29th. Um, but still, people uh, in the international community, in the in the West, in Israel, in the Gulf state, do not trust Iran. They believe that Iran harbor nefarious ambition to develop a bomb and to make itself a de facto nuclear uh, country, and that's it. And then they have to deal with it. And to be honest with you, I also don't believe even rapprochement with with Iran, it works. And I'm talking on a personal level, uh, just being a journalist. Um, Because the whole idea of the Iranian revolution is to export it to the rest of the Arab world. So if they started changing their policies and their behavior, they're going to cancel themselves. And the reason that for the revolution is basically this idea that they can dominate the Middle East and empower the Shiite in the Arab countries, which is causing a huge destabilization effect. We've seen it with the support for the Houthis in Yemen, the Shiite militias in Iraq, um, Hezbollah in Lebanon, etc. And unfortunately, these states are very fragile, and especially in Lebanon now, as we have seen recently, almost the government is collapsing. So 
another almost failed state. Um, so with that in mind, I think countering Iran is a, a unified, has unified Israel with the rest of the Arab states, trying to figure out how can we neutralize Iran. The administration believes it's through diplomacy, and uh, we'll see how far is Iran is getting away with developing and enriching uranium and having these centrifuges that's very advanced now. Their ballistic missiles, by the way, program that is in violation of the UN Security Council. They've been using these missiles and supplying them to the Houthis to threaten uh, Saudi Arabia. They've been using them in other conflict areas, even Ethiopia. So the the danger of Iran needs to be contained. And this is, I think, uh, one of the issues that arises in, in the conference. But the GCC, they don't act as a, uh, as a block. And therefore, I think they need to coordinate their defense and security policy to be able to face the threat from Iran. I fully agree. And by the way, the Palestinians are just as, as much in danger as Israel and its Arab neighbors because if Iran does attack in that direction, the Palestinians are right there next door to Israel. They suffer the same fate. So I think... Uh, if on this point, actually, I just wanted to point out and thank you for, for mentioning it because it is insanity when people uh, cheer Iran whenever they send missiles to Israel and say, you know, are these guys, do they understand the geography of the place? How can they differentiate even with attacks, with terrorist attacks that target Israelis in cafes or in, in buses. You cannot tell who's an Israeli and who's a, a, a Palestinian or who's an Arab Israeli. It just, you are, it's insanity to attack people altogether, let alone to think that you're targeting the Israelis, but you're not targeting the Palestinians. Let's talk about Lebanon. You mentioned Lebanon. I did a few podcast episodes on The Diplomat about Lebanon because I feel like nobody talks about Lebanon. So it's another country, almost a failed state, perhaps already a failed state. And nobody pays attention to it. Now you have all the uh, Arab countries, of course, either expelling their ambassadors, recalling their own ambassadors. Is there a way forward for Lebanon or at the moment, or is it really just doomed given the current circumstances? I mean, I'm optimistic person by nature, but I have to say it's doomed. And it's doomed as long as you have two elements that causes the demise of Lebanon. A militia that controls and call the shot, which is Hezbollah, and corrupt politicians that benefit from the status quo and everything that's happening there. They've been lining their pockets with billions of dollars at the expense of ordinary Lebanese. And I cannot see how this is going to change. Now, what the Gulf states did, uh, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, uh, and Kuwait, was the final straw. I think they just gave up on uh, Lebanese politics for a while. Uh, didn't get anything. But in return, some people say that Iran will fill the void. And it's always a counter argument for and against. But unfortunately, we've seen uh, the people's aspiration being crushed. They started with a revolution in the streets. We thought it was a delayed Arab Spring. Uh, people thought, Everybody has to resign. And they carried the slogan, Kullan Yani Kullan, means all of them. There's no exception to any sectarian leader, uh, Sunnis and Shiites and Druze and Christians, whoever, because all of them are the remnant of the civil war. And they carried on this as if it is inheritance. 
So they put their sons and their son-in-laws and their relatives in power. And so the system is not going to change. So unfortunately, unfortunately, Lebanon has been abandoned uh, by uh, the international community, even by the United States, actually. I think the, the, uh, this administration, or maybe even the Trump administration, but at least this administration outsourced Lebanon and dealing with Lebanon to France. So it's just like, apart from like giving a band aid of helping the Lebanese army with $60 million that the administration gave recently, there is no serious policies of trying to stop Lebanon from uh, going on the track of being a failed state. And let's talk about other problems in the region, Yemen, right? So tremendous suffering mm-hmm. there. But I think the Biden administration is not standing the way it should with our important ally, Saudi Arabia. I think that Saudi Arabia is suffering from, you know, in many ways, very similar to Israel. Rockets being thrown from Houthis, terrorists, even though the Biden administration removed the name terrorists from uh, the Houthis. Um, and I don't think that the Biden administration understands that Saudi has no choice but to defend itself. Um, it is tragic for the Yemen, Yemeni people. I agree with that. But there, too, you have Iran's tentacles sort of smothering millions and millions of lives in the hope to take over. Is there a solution there or there, too, where sort of right now nothing could be done? You know, Jason, I'm, I'm almost getting frustrated of asking the same question to administration officials. I mean, I've done so many interviews on this topic. Um, and the last one was with the president envoy to Yemen, uh, Tim Linderking. And I asked him, you know, is this any end in sight? I mean, for the last uh, year or so, you say that there's a progress, but there's no progress. And basically to end this war, which is the Biden administration announced that it is its priority in foreign policy. It's number one priority. But if you look practically, it's nothing has been done except that the Houthis is getting stronger. They've taken over more territory. They launched an attack on Ma'rib at the expense of 500,000 people. Lives could be affected. And um, the rockets are still going on Saudi Arabia. They've been launching rockets like almost every week. And as you said, uh, naively, they believe that if they uh, take the Houthis out of the terrorist list, then maybe that will in- intensify them to come to the negotiation table. And that's not happened because they are, the, the, they are puppets. The master is in Tehran. And basically, if the Iranians want to have a deal, then they, will, they can stop supplying. Maybe they have a, a organic movement represented by Houthis in Yemen. But the one who supplies them and trains them and gives them weapons, guess what? It's Iran, and everybody knows that. This and even Hezbollah fighters to train them in Yemen. So they're perpetuating the war. And unless you put these conditions on Iran and stop them from helping the Houthis, we're not going to see any end anytime soon. And Yemen, just like in Syria, by the way, the catastrophic results on people, and that's the worst humanitarian disaster in the 21st century. And as you said, no country in the world will allow its citizen to be um, attacked by rockets, like we have seen the Houthis launching against Saudi Arabia. And there is like, also there is 70,000 Americans who live there. And they're also at risk because when they launch these rockets, they just target civilian, you know, if it's a civilian airport or there are, um, you know, a, a shopping area, whatever, let alone, of course, when they target uh, Aramco and disrupt the line of, of, of all shipping and 
all the uh, skirmishes that we've seen in the Strait of, uh, of the Gulf Strait. So the danger, it is um, immense. And the way the administration dealing with it, I don't think it's the right one. They're trying to mediate through the Omanis. And, but again, if the Iranians don't want this conflict to end, it's not going to end. So it takes two to a tango. It's not just like to say, well, we have to stop um, you know, the war and the Saudis to blame. No. I mean, the Saudis are on the receiving end, as you said, from the Houthis. And their policies were never, they've been never involved in any um, coalition even, not just themselves, to attack uh, another country. But it's, it's in self-defense. Yeah, I was on a plane sitting on the runway to take off from Riyadh to Jeddah with my son, and they had to deplane us because rockets were being fired at the airport. It's, you know, people really just, they don't understand uh, what's going on there. And I think part of the problem is I, I don't know that the news coverage here in the United States is as good as it should be when it comes to the Arab countries. And one of those countries, I suppose, is Saudi Arabia. I have seen tremendous change um, in Saudi Arabia since I first stepped foot there in 2017. I, you know, I'll admit I'm a big fan of the crown prince, his vision 2030, what he's done. But I've seen in my frequent visits to Saudi Arabia what has changed. And I, I noticed a tweet that you had um, you had put out on the Riyadh season with footage mm-hmm. from international art, uh, artists and a quarter of a million people. I wouldn't have imagined that in 2017. Tell me what you think is happening now in Saudi Arabia. Look, it's a revolution. I mean, short of really describing it as a revolution, it is a, an incredible social and economic change that we have not witnessed uh, in the last uh, 70 years or so. So you have a young prince who wants to modernize his country. Um, he looked also at all kind of aspects. He just like really reevaluate the country and where it stands. So he said, look, we depend on oil and oil is a, a huge uh, income for Saudi Arabia. Or we understand that and the rest of the Arab countries, but we, it's not enough. We have to look at all kinds of issues, diverse economy, get foreign uh, companies to invest. Uh, he actually created something called the Green Revolution. He's, he's, he's planting billions of trees. Um, they're doing this huge project in Neum on the Red Sea. Um, not just like the cliches allowing women to drive and, uh, you know, but w- w- getting women to participate in the workforce. It's vital. And uh, again, just like the rest of the Arab world, uh, most of the Saudis are under very young population, under the age of 30. Most of them are highly educated. Some of them are educated in the West, especially women, actually. I'm very, very impressed by uh, the Saudi women and how much they have achieved in a short time. And he wants to modernize the, the country. So there is a social change, economic change, allowing foreigners to be there, give them equivalent to a green card, um, and he wants to take the uh, kingdom to uh, a different level, you know, where we go in the 21st century. So this doesn't get any coverage, of course. And I agree with you that the coverage in general of Saudi Arabia has been extremely, extremely negative. Um, and if you look even, and there's no comparison, there is a group of people in Washington who overlook, for example, what Iran does. And they don't see it at all. I mean, for example, Iran leaves the world in execution. And I said that in the uh, probably in my uh, presentation the other day. 
um, you know, the human rights violation that happens in Iran is incredible. And we're not, I mean, I, I will defend every life and I'm not here to compare, but what I'm saying that in terms of coverage, the Saudi get the raw end uh, for sure in Washington of how journalists are covering uh, the kingdom. Naja, I think you and I could talk for hours because uh, we have such passion <laughs> for this region and for the people of the region and, and for peace and for bettering lives. I really, really appreciate the time you've given me. I hope to have you on as a guest once again because I think we barely scratched the surface on both the, the region's problems but also the region's tremendous promise. Absolutely, and it's my pleasure always to talk with you, Jason. And as you said, you know, we, we met as uh, professionals uh, covering uh, a big story, and um, you know, it turned out to be a, a to a friendship. And hopefully, that we can invest in this, as you said, to do something more meaningful to to help other people, whatever they are, whether it is you know coming from a, a Jewish tradition or from a Muslim tradition or wh- whatever humanity, if you want that unite us that we can do something meaningful. And I really thank you for giving me the time as well to discuss these issues. Amen and shukran. Have fun. <laughs> Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I really enjoyed this interview with Nadia Babasi Charters from Al Arabiya. She's the bureau chief in Washington, D.C. As you could tell, we don't agree on certain things, including policies relating to Israel and the Palestinians, and in particular Gaza. Nadja, as you've heard in the interview, is from Gaza. I place all the blame on Hamas when it comes to the suffering of Palestinians in Gaza and the constant attacks on Israel. And I think Israel has no choice but to do what it's doing to protect itself, its citizens, and its country. Nadja sees things differently, but I think her comments show that she tries to be balanced and she's able to see the bigger picture. So even though we disagree on certain policies,